All right. Philosophical paradoxes. We are rounding the bend. We'll do some more. I think this will be the last one I'll do for now. We'll do some more in a bit. Let me know what you think. You can email me, if you like, at host at freedomain.com. You can support the show at freedomain.com slash donate. And uh, you can join the community at freedomain.locals.com or subscribestar.com slash freedomain. All right. So, John Fowles. John Fowles is a writer that both illuminated me and disappointed me. So, uh, John Fowles wrote a book called The Magus about a guy trying to discover his true self in a relationship and imparted to me, I guess this would be in my early 20s, maybe I was 20 or so, imparted in me the idea that life should not be lived with an invisible choir, a sort of Greek chorus of praising and condemning you for your various choices. Life is not to be lived for externalities. And really, the beginning of integrity is to have your own standards that are rational rather than following the approval or disapproval of others. It's hard to sort of existentially argue that you exist if you are a leaf in the breeze of the words of others. You are a follower, you are a conformist, you are water, not a solid. This is not a radical idea, this is not a shocking new idea, but it was for me back then, right? It was for me back then. You know, like kind of how when I first listened to it, it was actually uh, Sam Cooke is a, a singer I love. I love Sam Cooke, like holy crap. Uh, it's the man spent his entire life in the recording studio. Like when my daughter was young, I was looking for versions of the grandfather clock. And the grandfather clock was too tall for the shop. And Sam Cooke recorded a version of this, like every single thing, every single thing. And uh, I loved his work with the Soul Stirrers. I loved his solo work. I was, of course, very disappointed with how he died. But an amazing, amazing singer. A phraseology, passion, and a great songwriter, too. Rome wasn't built in a day. Change is going to come. You send me just, ah, great, great singer. And, and often imitated, never duplicated. I remember when I was in my teens, I, I looked older than my age, and I used to go to nightclubs and bars. And I remember going to see a soul singer by the name of Otis Clay. What a great name for a soul singer. And I thought the performance, and he was just like in a bar, basically. And it wasn't the Elmer Combo, but something like it. I was so excited that I, I absolutely demanded all of my friends come and pay the $10 cover fee to see him the next night. He was so such a passionate singer. And I remember he did a cover of Change is Gonna Come. It's one of the great songs in the American songbook that was written shortly after Bob Dylan came out with Blowing in the Wind. And Sam Cooke, who used to do covers of Blowing the Wind, you can hear them in the Harlem Nightclub cover. So he did covers of Blowing in the Wind. I actually remember a girlfriend of mine from many years ago uh, said that, that a black singer like Sam Cooke cannot master white folk in the same way, like white folk music, in the same way that white folk can't generally handle soul tunes. I just I thought it was a very interesting observation. I don't exactly know how true it was. But Sam Cooke listened to Blowing in the Wind, and he's like, where's the depth and power of our music? And then he wrote, Change is Gonna Come, and then uh, shortly after, he uh, was uh, killed. 
So, I mean, the, the general gist of the story is he was with a prostitute. He accused her of stealing something of his. Uh, he barged into the motel owner's office and she shot him, uh, fearing that he was going to attack her. It's really a, just a wretched, a wretched, tragic story. And he actually wasn't, I remember being quite surprised that he didn't actually have that much money, like a hundred grand or something when he died. And he was one of the most popular entertainers, of course, of that, of that time. So when I was given a, a record of Sam Cooke's greatest hits, I listened, didn't really know much about him. I think I knew about, don't know much about history, don't know much biology. I think I knew a little bit about that. And I think I'd heard you send me. But I remember getting goosebumps when the opening chords and the, I was born by the river. And great, uh, great lyrics. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's just a great, great set of lyrics. Very powerful. And the vocals are just staggeringly good. But anyway, so when I listened to Summertime, which of course is a song from an old musical, uh, your daddy's rich and your mama's good looking. I remember that being the first tickling of sexual market value. Okay, so men have money, women have looks, and blah. It just started me down. It's just amazing what you could build out of these tiny scraps. But uh, The Magus was a pretty important book for me. I was assigned it in my English literature class and read it with great avidity. And it was one of the books that, when I was asked to write an essay on the book, I floundered around. It's one of the things that... I ended up leaving the, my English degree. I did two years of an English degree. I did almost two years at the National Theatre School. Then I finished up in history. And one of the reasons I switched from English to history was because I'm a good writer and a good debater, I could write essays about English literature that could not really be marked wrong. You know, this is my argument for some particular aspect or theme of the book. And because I write well and can debate well and argue well, who can prove me wrong, right? And, I, and that's why I switched to history, is I wanted a more objective discipline. Back then when I thought history had some facts in it, <laughs> other than, I mean, there are facts in history, but all the narratives are false. I mean, that's my perspective now. And I mean, we can see this, of course, in the history that's being forged in the moment, where we can see actual events be transmitted into falsehoods like right in front of our eyes the alchemy of fiction that drives the fantasy of history as historical narratives we can see being created in in our own eyes like right in real time it has deconstructed that so the facts of history are unimportant the narratives of history are everything and the narratives of history are generally false uh, they serve. It's the old Norm MacDonald quote. This is nothing particularly shocking, I'm sure, to hear. You know, it says right here in this history book, the, the good guys have won every single time. What are the odds, huh? So, yeah, I, the Magus was a big book for me. Uh, this scraps of it I remember even, you know, 20 to oh, 57, <laughs> 37 years later. I remember that he gets a teaching, the, the, the main character gets a teaching post in... Greece, and he says he was always surprised that just the kids who weren't that smart coming through his school, who had names like Socrates, Socrates, and Aristotle, and and so on. I don't know if there were that many Plato's around at that point, but yeah, I remember that. And I remember that there's tortured love affair and the breakdown of the false self. So I thought John Fowles was a a good writer, 
but I never liked any of his other books. I tried The Maggot to try a bunch of other things, and I just, just, just couldn't. So, you know, when the, the writers, it's a one-hit wonder for me, at least, is that these flash in the pan, and then how do you, how do you sustain it? So, uh, John, and this is going to be very, very important to your life, this one. You can enjoy the rambling intro as you see fit. But John Fowles said, intelligence, high intelligence is a terrifying gift. This is paraphrase. High intelligence is a terrifying gift. The ability to predict the consequences of any action means you will get lost in a labyrinth of hypotheses. Rule one, do not lose the will. A labyrinth, a labyrinth of hypotheses. Right. In, intelligent people are more prone to uncertainty and all progress comes from uncertainty. All progress, all progress comes from uncertainty. So uncertainty needs to be in the, it's one of the definitions of what needs to be in the Aristotelian mean. Uncertainty is essential for progress. Too little uncertainty and you remain stuck in vanity. Too much uncertainty and you become paralyzed and easily overtaken by less intelligent people who are in possession of more certainty. So how is it that we can combine intelligence and certainty without becoming prejudiced? To be certain of things without being hardened in our beliefs is a real challenge. Now, it is one of the central issues that philosophy is supposed to solve. <laughs> it's like the major job is to teach you what you can be certain of and what you need to be curious about. So we need to be certain that axe murdering is wrong, but we need to be curious about the best way to solve social problems. Because otherwise we, we end up in this completely bizarre scenario where in sort of modern philosophy, we don't even know what's real, we don't even know what's true, but we know that we can call certain thoughts bigotry and be absolutely certain that those people are evil, no matter what, right? And I remember, this is sort of many, many years ago, I did a fairly famous show at the time. It was a two-parter, I think, called Jennyism. There was this woman, Jenny, I was having a debate with, and she said there was some left-wing legal policy that she wanted implemented, but she also said that she couldn't prove that Europe existed because she'd never been there, right? And I remember laughing, and it sounds unkind, but it genuinely, it's not meant to be unkind, it's just genuine humor and astonishment that this woman, Jenny, was not certain that Europe existed, but was absolutely certain her socialist, policy should be, should, socialist policies should be enacted there. I mean, to see how, how bizarre that is, like when you get the sort of chain of epistemology and you see how, I don't know if this exists. I don't know if this continent even exists. I can't prove it. I'm not certain about it. But I'm absolutely certain that my pet socialist project should be enacted into law there. That's beyond bizarre. But that's kind of the inevitable result. That the reason why certainty is attacked is so that anti-rationality can advance unopposed. The reason that reason is attacked is so that sophistry fells its mortal foe before the fight is even joined. The reason that subjectivism is championed is so that intelligent people who could argue back are denied the certainty that gives them strength. 
I mean, to disarm your opponent prior to the duel is the best way to win. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight, as the (laughs) analogy sometimes goes. So to be intelligent is to have doubt. And to be less intelligent often, though not always, of course, these are just general trends. We're too smart to need all of these (laughs) asterisks, right? So I'm just going to talk in general terms, tons of exceptions. To be more intelligent is to have doubt. To be less intelligent is to be certain. And society has to make decisions. Society has to make decisions. And if the intelligent are full of doubt and the less intelligent are full of certainty and society needs to make decisions, the less intelligent will end up being the captains and stewards of the ship of the state. Or to put it another way, doubt is a way for the less intelligent to gain control of social apparatus by infecting the more intelligent with doubt while never doubting themselves. So if you can get, let's say you're not that smart, but you want to be in charge, then what you can do, the the, the smart people stand in your way because the smart people can out-debate you, out-argue you, and usually out-think you. So what do you do? If you're not that smart and you want to be in charge, well, what you do is you start asking people yeah, the how do you know questions, the basic metaphysics and epistemology questions and so on. And then while they're scrambling in the pea soup of uncertainty, you stride forward with all certainty and, and step over their half-bog-swallowed brains and you get your way. Uncertainty is a weapon used by the average against the smart because the smart <clears throat> want to be certain and have doubt and you know see the outcomes of all choices and it's you know this is hamlet versus his uncle right this is hamlet versus his uncle hamlet is full of doubt his uncle is full of certainty and sin hamlet has doubts as to whether the ghost of his father is either a real or b his actual father and not something sent by the devil, a phantasm sent by the devil to lure him into the sin of murder. Uh, these are good questions to have. Right? These are good questions to have. You know, in general, and in all circumstances and cases that I can conceive of, if a person hears voices telling him to kill someone, don't kill anyone. That's murder. So Hamlet is right to doubt and right to question and right to be paralyzed because he might be going mad and his uncle might be innocent of the murder of his father, which is why he creates the play. The play is the thing wherein will catch the conscience of the king. Such great writing. Oh, eternally carved into the glowing fabric of man's mind and the universe. So, to be smart is to have doubt. One of the reasons that people got angry at UPB is that UPB gives the intelligent moral certainty, which means they can't be sent off in a wild goose chase of epistemology and ethics by the average who wish to take control of the social apparatus. To take a sort of silly analogy, right? I mean, you've got Army A and Army B, and let's say Army B is able to convince Army A that they're not certain of the morality of their cause. Well, that's going to cause a lot of debate and sap the fighting spirit of Army A. Therefore, Army B, that remains certain 
of the validity of its cause, thus wins. Wins the battle, wins the war, wins the fight, wins the territory, wins control, and then wipes out Army A. Uncertainty is a biological weapon aimed at sometimes overdeveloped neofrontal cortexes. It's a, it's a virus. You infect people with uncertainty, and you can uh, take them over. While people are arguing about lifeboat scenario property rights debates, you stride in and take their stuff. So it's like a you want to go in and rob a house, but there's a big, big old dog there. What do you do? Well, you drug a piece of meat and you throw the piece of meat to one side. The dog eats the meat and falls asleep and you rob the house. So what the midwits do is they say to the smart, you have approved this to me. And then the smart are like, well, I want to be certain. I need to prove things. I love to debate. And there's a hidden sort of motive as well, which I'll get to in a sec. So then the smart go off and debate like crazy and wrap themselves up in knots and torture themselves and create flowcharts and syllogisms and, and so on. And while they're out of the way, the midwits uh, take over. Now, that's the offer. The offer is to debate. And early on, you know, when the history of the show is written in the future, and it will be, early on, there were lifeboat scenarios that were put forward, right? Guy hanging from a flagpole, can he kick in a window in order to save himself from falling to the ground and so on, right? And I answered those very easily and very quickly. And that was really annoying to people. That's really annoying to people. Because like the dog that ate the meat, but ate around all of the drug, ate, ate around all of the poison, and thus was stronger to repel the thieves. That's annoying. People got really mad at me about that. Same thing with people would say, define love, define truth, define determinism, define free will, right? And I would do those things. I have done those things. And they've not been overthrown. Define virtue. Yep, okay, I'll take on that challenge and I'm going to uh, be, be certain about it. So people would come in with, the midwits would come in and try to distract me and neuter me, to neuter me by having me, and this is part of the Socratic thing as well, right? So they would say, define this, the general way that you do this, the way that you neuter the intelligent is, you say, give me a definition, and then you find an exception, right? And then the person has to go and refine their thesis, and, and this game just never ends for most people, right? I was able to put a stop to it with my definitions of love, definitions of free will, analysis of the nature of reality, the repudiation of the Cartesian brain in a tank hypothesis, definitions of free will. I mean, really, I have brought, and, and the final, the crowning achievement, which is the definition of a good and evil, UPB, which takes away a doubt. If, if you don't want to have doubt, you can lose your doubt by working with the definitions that I put forward. And I know that's kind of grandiose. Well, if you want to lose doubt, working with the definitions, make sure you understand them. And if there's refinements to the definitions, I'm happy to make them. But the definitions have not been accepted or debated, which tells you that the people who want answers don't want answers. They just want you to get out of the way. So people would come to me, and, you know, this is the concern troll, you know, in a sense, like, well, you know, I... I really want to be certain. I just don't know that I can be. And if you can help me out, that'd be great. The certainty would be excellent, right? And then I would make the case and they get angry and storm off, right? So they don't want certainty. 
right? They don't want certainty. They want to drug people with insecurity. And of course, we, we can see that, right? I mean, the atheist community has not had any luck answering the question of ethics. UPB comes along and absolutely answers the question of ethics. I'm going to say this now because it's been 15 years, more, and I've debated it endlessly here or there. I've written books, articles, done podcasts, presentations, you name it. And it is absolutely impossible to overthrow the central tenets of UPB. It cannot be done. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt. It is 100% syllogistical proof. The only way that you can overthrow the proof for UPB is over overthrowing the concept of proof entirely. That is 100%. There's no doubt whatsoever. I didn't have any doubt when I wrote it and published it. But since then, my lack of doubt, if it's mathematically impossible but psychologically possible, my lack of doubt has only grown. Lack of doubt, not doubt. Lack of doubt. My certainty has increased. Even people who hate the argument can't overthrow it. That was sort of the rationality rules debate. So people who want to drug you with uncertainty don't like it when you resist the drug, right? Iocane powder, what is it in Princess Bride? The guy who spent his whole life developing a resistance to iocane powder so he can't be drugged. In fact, the drug that, if the drug that's supposed to debilitate you makes you stronger, that's not good, right? It's, like, it's almost like you, you feed a relatively, you feed a medium-sized medium dog a drug so you can rob the house, and the drug actually turns it into a feral wolf, or a pack of wolves, really. Well, you're not happy, right? Well, I just want to feed the doggy. No, you want to drug the doggy. When the drug doggy comes back stronger, you run away. Oh, I just want to, you know, I just want to get certainty which is a desire to infect other people with uncertainty. Oh, I just want to get certainty. I'm just looking to close this loop off. I just want to make sure I understand and be certain. And then when certainty comes back, you run away because the debilitating drug hasn't taken. And so you can't rob. Now, I said that there was a darker motive to it as well, and there is. Oh, but there is. So the darker motive is that when the sophists come along with their pretend demand for certainty, oh, I just want to be certain, I want to make sure I'm right about this, blah, 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 blah. When the sophists come along, the midwit sophists come along with their pretend demand for certainty, there is a threat implicit, which is that if you actually come back with certainty, you're, you're a target. You're, you're going to be targeted. Like, if you come back with certainty, you will be targeted. So there's, it's a double deal. One is that I want certainty, and the other is that if you actually provide certainty, I will attack you. And of course, I was attacked from very early on for the provision of certainty. So that threat, that threat, like we can do this. Listen, smart guy, you're in the way of me taking power, smart guy. So we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. The easy way is I pretend to have doubt and you run off, get out of my way and pretend to be doing something by mucking around in the cellus of metaphysics and epistemology. You know, it's get out the way, don't bother me, go take your drug, lie down in the corner, let me rob, and you won't get hurt, right? So when people come and say, I don't have certainty, the intelligent, the intellectuals, what we often do deep down is we say, ooh, ah, yeah, okay. So this guy wants me to get out the way, like the un unconscious or the, the sort of deep, negotiation, and so much of life is this deep negotiation that is pretending to be about abstract things, but it's around, around very, very real power and often aggression or violence. So someone comes along and says, oh, okay, Mr. Certainty, tell me what truth, reality, morality, free will, tell me what all these things are. 
So that person has identified you as being in the way of some power that they wish to achieve or maintain. And they're saying, oh, yeah, prove it, prove it, prove it. And deep down, the intellectuals, we all know that if we do prove it, we're in danger. Whereas if we go off and muck about, we're out of the way, we get to do things that are vaguely enjoyable, we're not a threat, we're not attacked. Right? So it's kind of like, you know, we, we would be the dogs in this analogy, and someone comes along with a drug for the dog and a whip. A drug and a whip. I say, here, doggy. And the dog knows if he doesn't eat the drug, he's going to get the whip. And so the doggy's like, okay, well, I'd rather be, if the guy's going to rob anyway, I'd rather be asleep than whipped. Right? So, yeah, here, doggy. Good, good doggy. Take the, take, right? And then there's a whip, right? And the dog's like, okay, if I don't, like unconsciously, in this analogy, the dog is like, okay, if I don't, if I don't take the drug, I'm going to get the whip. And I'd much rather take the drug and fall asleep than take the whip and be tortured, be assaulted. I mean, that's kind of exactly how it played out, right? Then I provide certainty and get attacked. And the people who demanded certainty never thanked me p- for providing it, right? That, that's the, right? So the guy says, here, good, good doggy, just want to feed you, doggy, just want to give you something to eat. And then the dog gets bigger and stronger, and the man then whips the dog, right? Because he didn't want to feed the dog. He wanted the dog to get out the way. He wanted the dog to be drugged and fall asleep. Because, you know, feeding makes things stronger. And so if the man feeds the dog, the dog gets stronger, and then the man attacks the dog. The, dog didn't, the man didn't want to feed the dog. He wanted to drug the dog, right? The drug didn't work. So the secondary disabling mechanism of attack and violence comes out. and. The intelligent uh, know this by instinct, right? One of the ways that intelligence has preserved itself in society is by succumbing to the lure of irrelevance. Okay, I'm really smart, and the price of survival in society is pursuing the irrelevant. And then, of course, if you do pursue the irrelevant, you become an academic and so on, then you'll be well-paid, you'll get prestige, you'll get summers off, you'll get sabbaticals every couple of years, you get to put doctor in front of your name, you get all, all of this. So they'll, they'll pay you well for a commitment to irrelevance, in other words, staying out of the hungry jaws of those who want to snap their fangs down on the body politic. So that's the, that's the deal. That's the deal. Oh yeah, show me certainty is, if you come back with certainty, I'll F you up. Your ass is mine. Whereas if you go off and pretend to pursue certainty and become irrelevant, I'll pay you well. I'll bribe you to stay out of the way. Again, it's kind of like there's an unarmed security guard and a guy who wants to rob the warehouse shows up and he says, here's how it's going to go. I'll give you 500 bucks to go to the bathroom for 10 minutes or I'm going to shoot you in the leg. I'll give you a lot of praise if you become irrelevant, but I'll attack you if you provide the certainty that I claim that I want. And this is the deal, right? Anybody who approaches you wanting certainty is almost certainly, and certainly if they're, you know, if they're power mongers in their own, it could be personal lives, doesn't have to be politics or anything like that, but anybody who approaches you and demands certainty is, it's kind of a threat. Because I'm trying to think, like, certainly among people who've listened, they're very grateful for things like UPB, Universally Preferable Behavior, my rational proof of secular ethics, available at freedomand.com slash books for free. But of the people who have, in a sort of public sphere, kind of called me out, demanding certainty, wanting debates, not one of them, not one of them in my entire life, and really we should talk about the last 18 years or so, 
or you know, 16 years since I formalized UPB, although one of my earliest articles was Proving Libertarian Morality, which is the genesis of UPB. But not one person who has demanded certainty from me has ever thanked me for providing it, right? If you are tortured by pain and I give you a cure, wouldn't you thank me? If you are tortured by uncertainty and I give you certainty, shouldn't you thank me? But I'm never thanked. I'm only attacked, right? I mean, I'm, an empi- I'm an empiricist, so this makes sense in theory, it makes sense in history, and it also accords with very public evidence. Have you ever seen anyone who wants certainty thank me for providing it? No, they just, they move the goalposts, they attack, they go ad hominem, they talk about consequences and so on, right? So just, just so you know how this plays, right? It's like everyone in society, when you're a kid, everyone in society says, well, you got to tell the truth. But if you do tell the truth about being bored, unhappy, frightened, aggressed against, beaten, spanked, right? If, bored in school, like if, if the teacher says, tell me the truth, and you say, the truth is that you're really boring and all of this subject matter is incredibly irrelevant. And I look at all the adults in my life and none of them are putting into practice the stuff that you teach me here. So you're wasting my time, right? That, that's an honest, true statement. So everyone says, tell me the truth and then attacks you for telling the truth, right? I mean, basically, they tell you that truth is a virtue when you're in possession of information those in power want, and truth is a vice. It's rude, it's mean, it's nasty. If you're in possession of information that's inconvenient to those in power, like your teacher, right? You're boring and all that, right? So that's the deal. That's the deal. That intelligence, and I'm not complaining about the deal, right? I'm, I'm not like... Because if all the smart people had provided absolute answers to these pretend questions about uncertainty, we wouldn't have made it. We wouldn't have made it. And, you know, high intelligence may have slowly eroded from the toolbox of the species. So I, I, it's, a, it's a fine deal. I, I get the deal. I'm, I'm not condemning. I'm not, right? I'm not getting down on all this. I'm just pointing out that these are the mechanics. And really, until the internet, it was impossible to not take the deal. Uh, those, those who did not take the deal were generally tortured, ostracized, murdered, or unmated with. So that was no, no real answer. So you trade your survival for irrelevance, which is why most of the philosophers throughout human history have not talked about child abuse. I mean, really, all, functionally, all the philosophers have avoided the topic of uh, child abuse. Because that's where a philosopher can be the most relevant in the promulgation, pursuit, and spread of virtue. But if you bring virtue to the question of child raising, well, uh, people get kind of mad if you if you haven't noticed, right? Which is understandable, and I, I really do sympathize with that. You know, mean parents have relied on tens of thousands of years of philosophers talking about whether we're a brain, we're a brain in a tank, rather than asking whether beating children is moral. It's, uh, it's bad luck, you know, if you're a bad parent in the past and, you know, some philosopher comes along and starts talking about this stuff. I mean, like, I'm really sorry. You just, historically, you drew the short straw. Man, it's tough. You had every reason to believe that this lie was going to continue. So. so then the last point I sort of want to make is, okay, so how do we overcome option paralysis? We can see every outcome and we get lost in what, and I go through this, right? I still go through this. I'm currently wrestling with Kant. I wrestle with my relationship to the majority. I, you know, my level of compassion for those who have attacked me. Like, I still wrestle with all this stuff and 
I think it's important that I do. But how do you overcome that? How do you overcome doubt? Well, the opposite of doubt are principles. The opposite of doubt are principles. If you're intelligent, then you can see all the possible myriad effects of everything that you do, which means that a train can only go two directions, right? Forward on the track or backwards on the track, one way or the other, north or south, east or west. I mean, there are switches, I get that, but you can still only go one way on any particular track. The fewer the choices, the more the certainty. And since less intelligent people tend to see fewer choices, they tend to be more certain. But their certainty is only because they see fewer choices. The more intelligent you are, the more choices and outcomes you see, and the more choices and outcomes you have. Smart people can do just about anything. And the dull-witted, again, no hate, just just a fact of life. There are tall people, short people, and so on. They're full humans, right? You get all of this, right? But that is, I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Good Will Hunting, right? I mean, the Ben Affleck character says, man, if... Every morning, I'm, I'm hoping that you ain't going to be at work. Every morning, I'm hoping that, you know, if, if you're still in this neighborhood cracking beers with me and watching the game in 20 years, I'll kick your ass because you've got choices I don't have. You can go and work for some brilliant think tank. You can go and be a mathematician. You can go, I'm stuck doing this. I'm a human forklift moving construction stuff from A to Z for the next 50 years. You can do anything you want. And the fact that you're still here is heartbreaking to me. It's a great speech. Now, It's not common that the people as low-witted as the Ben Affleck character would make those statements, but that's fine. Smart people have more choices, and smart people see more outcomes, more possibilities. They see more variables in play, and therefore, intelligence leads to paralysis. When I can go and do anything, when I can go anywhere and do anything, where do I want to go and what do I want to do? It's tough. And history, of course, is absolutely littered and scattered with brilliant people massively underachieving because of option paralysis. So consequentialism is a deadly drug for the hyperintelligent because consequentialism is put forward as a way of crippling high intelligence, right? This is midwits put forward consequentialism because they know it's going to paralyze intelligent people because if you're going to judge an action by its consequences, then the people who can see the most consequences are going to be the most paralyzed. The people who can see the most consequences are going to be the most paralyzed. If you're a train, you go north or south. That's it. You go forwards or backwards. So you get two options. If you can go anywhere and do anything, do you want A or do you want B? Flip a coin, right? A or B. It's binary. One or zero. But if you have infinite possibilities, what do you want to do with your life? Then you're more prey to incentives. I can't make a decision. Let's just look where the most money is, the highest status is or whatever, and then you're under control of those providing that money and status, right? So consequentialism is put forward as an irrelevancy drug that takes the intelligent out of the game of society. And the way that you counter this, of course, is with principles. So how do you live? Well, you can't live according to consequentialism as an intelligent person in particular because you'll get option paralysis. So you live based on principles, and that's the great gift of UPB, is to give you principles. What should society do? Well, you know, this is a Thomas Sowell, you know, there aren't any solutions, there are only trade-offs, right? So you say, oh, was the welfare state good or bad? Well, there's these pluses to it, but there's these minuses to it. There are benefits, there are costs, short-term, long-term, and you end up not being able to do anything because you're too busy chasing your own tail 
in increasingly thickening fog on a barge that's sailing off to nowhere. Whereas if you have principles, the initiation of force is immoral, property rights are moral, theft is immoral, uh, then there's your answer. There's your answer. Now, answers for intellectuals are dangerous. Because if you don't go away from the fight, people will fight you. If you don't run away, people will fight you. Running away to irrelevance is the unholy bargain that's offered to the intellectuals. I'll give you money. I'll give you status. You can have some co-eds to bang, at least in the past. I'll give you all this cool stuff. Just be irrelevant. Okay. Okay. And this is something Ayn Rand complained about. I think there was a meeting, meeting of the American Philosophical Society during the turmoil of the 60s, and they were like, are nouns epistemologically real things? Is a noun, something like that, right? It's like, okay, so she's frustrated at that, and it's like, but that's the deal. We give you money, just shut up and go away. Get out the way. Get out the way. It's like, we've got a, we've got a road coming through, and your house is in the way. We can do this a nice way, or we can do this the nasty way. The easy way or the hard way. The easy way is, we give you a lot of money for your house, and you get the fuck out. The hard way is, we're just going to demolish your house, right? And it just sort of struck, popped into my head, of course, that that's the opening of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That there's an interstate, sorry, it has a hyperspace bypass coming through, and Earth has to be demolished. Which, of course, I mean, logically, of course, makes no sense. And Arthur Dent is intellectual and paralyzed in his life, thinks through all the options. And of course, he runs up against a guy who's a direct ancestor of Genghis Khan, who's very certain and aggressive, right? So this is the, the society of the Vogons. Arthur Dent is the intellectual, and the midwits are the guy evicting him. Because I can guarantee you this, people like Genghis Khan did not trouble themselves puzzling over what was real or true or not. He, con he, he conquered. But the enemy of the warlord is the moralist, so the warlord bribes the moralist with irrelevancy by sending legions to demand what is true. And if the moralist doesn't take that deal, then he is disposed of in a much uglier way. So the only answer to option paralysis, which is a mark of significant intelligence, are principles. But principles are scary. And we may all know this, right? Principles are scary because principles put you in conflict with some very certain and often very aggressive people. So that's what I get out of the John Fowles quote about intelligence. And I hope that this helps clarify the way the world works and your challenges and my challenges in this exciting, exciting time. It is an incredibly exciting time. I can't tell you how agonizing it would have been to be a moralist, an intellectual in the past. I would have been corrupted by bribery or disassembled by blowback, but I can't imagine I would have been much tempted by irrelevance. So, uh, thank you everyone so much. Freedomain.com slash donate. Appreciate your feedback. Let me know what you think of this series. You can post, of course, comments under the videos or wherever you like. But I'll stop this for now. This is the end of this philosophical paradoxes. If you have more, of course, you can always post them at freedomain.locals.com and maybe I'll do more, but I really, really enjoyed the series and I thank you for your time, attention, care and support for allowing me to do this, I do believe, the most essential work in the world that is and the universe that we know of. Thanks everyone so much. Have a great day. Bye.